Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set glory above the heavens. Out of the mouth of babies and infants, you have established strength because of your foes to steal the enemy and the avenger. When I look at your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and have crowned him with glory and honor. You have made, given him dominion over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen and also the beasts of the fields, the birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and whatever passes along the paths of the seas. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. For those of you who have it from memory, and for those of you who do not have it from memory yet, we are going to recite together Psalm 1, and we are going to do just the first two verses. So, Donna, could you throw up the cheater version for those of you who need it? And let's recite it together. Ready? Blessed is the man, nor or sit in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. Friends, memorizing the word of God refreshes the soul, refreshes the soul. So I strongly encourage you, admonish you, memorize Scripture. There are few things as precious and as amazing as the moment when a baby enters the world. I've had it with our kids and I've been in hospitals enough times in in my lifetime to know that there is something very special about that, that first cry of a baby or that moment when you receive the baby for the first time covered with all the goo and yuck. And you look at all the goo and the yuck and the baby that's underneath it and you go, oh, this is absolutely amazing. There's a moment of being awestruck of, we created this. In those moments of, we created this. Those moments where you find yourself in tears. You find yourself going, how can somebody say that there is not a God? This is one of my my favorite pictures. This is the day that Grace met Isaac. And that, that moment of... It's one of my favorite pictures. Of she's even looking at him and touching him and his fingers and go, who is this? And in those moments, we are all struck by, 
there really is a God. And to deny it is almost a case for stupidity. How can this happen? Human evolution? Is that possible? No. Each fingerprint is unique. Every, every dimple, every little hidden freckle. And you go, this is a unique creation by God. Or last summer, during my sabbatical, we went out to Grand Lake, Colorado. And on our drive out there, we went up through what's called the Trail Ridge Road, which is just this 12,000 feet above sea level. And this mountain that just curves all the way through the the Rockies. And you are looking at these, these mountain gorges that just go almost straight down. You see the snow up on the landscape, up on the mountaintops, and the green that is down below. You look at the creation that God has put into place, these these plants that if you step on them, you affect the ecosystem for a long, long time because it has taken those plants forever to grow. You look at the plants. You look at the animals that are out there. You sit back and you go, you have got to be kidding This is not an accident. This is where we were in Grand Lake. And looking, and this was in a kayak, by the way. I cut my feet out so you didn't have to look at my gnarly toes. But looking out, and you are saying, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. These views... These children are awe-inspiring. But there's something deeper than children, more profound than the beauty of nature. The majesty of creation and the birth of a baby are just two small examples of the beauty of life and how it points us to something beyond ourselves. As parents, it's, it's easy to get really fixated on the beauty and the awe of a a child that's mine. But this child points you, should point you to something beyond the child. Everyone has these experiences of where we get fixated on these things and these people and this creation, but they are all there for the purpose of pointing your eyes up and out. Everyone has these experiences in like this in life. And not every one of us makes the connection between the beauty and the amazing creation that God has given us and ultimately the worship of God. There's a disconnect. Not everyone sees the link between our life experiences and the glory of God. But David did. Psalm 8 is a song written by a man who saw the link. It's the very first psalm of praise and adoration in the entire book of Psalms. And it provides us a great model for how we should look at life. In fact, I would argue that you really do not see true beauty if you do not see it through the lens of Psalm 8. If you see a mountain and just say, look at that mountain, and miss the worship of its creator... You've missed it. 
If you look at the, this amazing child with all of its goo and beauty and personality, and you miss his or her creator, you've missed it. So last week, we, we talked about how in Psalm 1, that all of life is given this playlist. It, psalms, in, in, in Psalms, there is a song for every season of life. And Psalm 8 is for the moments of beauty, for the seasons of great joy, and for the situations where you behold something absolutely stunning awe-inspiring but the question is when you go wow who comes to mind when you go wow who comes to mind and the psalmist answers that question with with three statements that reflect the beauty of a sovereign god who is a caring creator And these three statements, I long for you to be able to say with all your heart. And here's the first one. God, you are amazing. Psalm Psalm 8, like many other psalms, have, have some contextual instrumentations and instructions that are found at the very beginning. If if you look at Psalm chapter 8, you you see that little heading in there. To the choir master. According to the Githith, Githith, the Githith, a psalm of David. These headings were likely added later as the psalms were incorporated into a book, a book that the church, Israel, would sing together. And they gave guidance to, to their context and authorship or, or how they should be used. And in this case, it was to be sung in a certain way, which was probably used with a certain kind of musical instrument, which is now probably obsolete. And someday, just so you know, our instrumentation is probably going to become obsolete. But there were certain instructions for that particular time with a particular musical instrument or a special occasion. This is how you sing it. In verse 1 begins in a way that seems, honestly, maybe a little redundant. However, you need to look closely at the words used for, if you're reading carefully, you're going to see that there's some repetition going on. Oh, Lord, our Lord. Do you notice anything, though? As as you're looking at that, actually the text, not the words, the text. Oh, Lord, our Lord. Do you notice anything? Somebody point out what is different. Capital letters. Oh, capital letter Lord. Our Lord. They're, and it's, it's intentional. It's not just, oh, may, maybe they misspelled or maybe they wanted to use caps now to kind of be an exclamation mark. That's how we kind of do it in our texting world, right? You want to say, come on, quit, quit yelling. That's not what's going on here. But what is happening here is that the Hebrew language has different, a number of different words for God. And they have a different meaning and honestly, a different level of reverence for God. 
And what you see here is a very important difference between two words that are used to address God. When you see the Lord in all caps, it indicates the word, the name Yahweh. Yahweh. And when it's in lower letters, Lord, it is referencing Adonai. And for some of you, you're going, okay, I've heard those names, but I'm not sure what it means. It is critical. Yahweh is the sacred and the self-revealed name of God. It was famously used by God when he meets with Moses in the wilderness. And, And what does God do? He says, listen, I am giving you a charge to confront Moses and demand that let my people go, right? And God says, listen, Moses said to to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to him? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he shall say, and he said this, say this to the people of Israel. I am has sent me to you. And the Lord said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel. The Lord, capital L-O-R-D, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. I love how he has to have that repeated. The same God has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I am to be remembered throughout all the generations. So go and gather the elders of Israel and say to them, the Lord, Yahweh, I am. The God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob has appeared to me saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. So the name Yahweh means I am. And it points to God's self-existence, his independence, and his absolute sovereignty. I am. It is the name so sacred to those ancient Israelites who were reading these psalms that they would not actually pronounce the name, but would simply say the name. It was so sacred. It was so revered revered that they, if you even look in writings today, that they even take out vowels and leave it a certain way because they dare not write out his full name. They dare not say his full name because it is so holy. It is so awesome that they dare not use God's full name. So they refer to him as the name. The name was special because Yahweh was how God described himself. And it was an amazing gift of grace that God even revealed himself to his people. And then, not only did he reveal himself, he gave them his name. It was a powerful and a personal name indicating, listen, I am the creator. I am dependent on nothing, on no one. His name came to represent himself, his glory, his blessing, his authority. Therefore, whenever God sets his name, like in a land or in a temple or on his people, he is indicating his blessing and his presence on them. 
in every place where I cause my name to be remembered, I will come to you and bless you. That's Exodus 20. Where I cause my name to be remembered. What's going to happen? I'm going to come to you and I'm going to bless you. Blessed is the man who walks not, what? Counseling the wicked. Blessed is that man. And that blessed is connected to the I am. So when the psalmist says, O Lord, he is saying something like this. O self-existing, universe-creating, self-revealing, slavery-breaking, grace-giving, always-existing, never-ending, nation-conquering, people-loving, promise-keeping God. That's what he's saying. Oh, Lord, you are above the name above every other name. You. And he says that all in one word. Yahweh. But there's more. He, he says this mind-blowing Yahweh in our Lord. And here the, the psalmist identifies a gracious contrast that we will see repeated. Although God is glorious above our comprehension, He is also personally, personally involved in the lives of His people. O Lord, our Lord. The psalmist says that he is our Adonai, our Adonai. And this means our owner, our Lord, our master, our controller. In other words, this great God is a personal master of the psalmist. Oh, great God, my God who owns me, that is who I am worshiping. This self-existing, universe-creating, self-revealing, slavery-breaking, grace-giving, always-existing, never-ending, nation-conquering, people-loving, promise-keeping God is our God. If that does not change the way that you come to worship, you're missing the boat. Oh Lord, our Lord, this is personal. So now that we've covered the first four words, we can get on to the rest of the text. But that sets up the framework for how we understand the rest of the psalm. Oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. So once again, we see the importance of the name. It's not just that God's name is known. It's that everything that the name represents, his glory, his rule, his essence, his power is on full display for the whole world to see. And that's why the psalmist uses this word majestic. And immediately as I read that word, I think about a song that I was forced Forced to memorize, it was one of those patriotic kind of things about the Purple Mountain's majesty, the fruited plain, America, America. This is far grander than that. Far grander. This word is used to describe one who is impressive, almost intimidating, a power, a power that is visible and on display for all to see. 
The psalmist is saying that everywhere that he can look in all of the earth, that is fully comprehensive. In all of the earth, the majesty of God's name is declared with triumphant power. Oomph. There's a punch to it. So this self-existing, universe-creating, self-revealing, slavery-breaking, grace-giving, always-existing, never-ending, nation-conquering, people-loving, promise-keeping God is our God. And everything, everything declares His greatness. In other words, God is amazing. Everything. And the psalmist is overwhelmed by the beauty and the power and the graciousness of God. He is so transfixed by the love of God that he looks at the world. He looks at the baby. He looks at everything that is around him in all the earth. And he can't help but see God's glory being revealed. Every time he opens his eyes, every time he shifts, every time he blinks, every time he wakes up and looks, he goes, oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Wouldn't that change the way that we looked at our world? The whole earth is declaring God is amazing. And this is the predominant theme of this psalm. And that is why it starts and ends with the exact same statement. I think we need, it's almost the way we should look at our weeks. We need to start with the, and this is Sunday morning, Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And we need to end our week saying, reminding ourselves, Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic. And we should do that also with every day, every moment that we have. Oh Lord, oh Lord, look at what you've done. Oh Lord, oh Lord, how majestic is your name. He will lead us in this psalm to other places. But in true form to the song, this is the course that is repeated. God, you are amazing. But here's the second thing. You have been gracious to me. Part of the beauty of what happens in Psalms is, it is the contrast between God's amazing power and majesty and the gracious way in which he operates. God is amazing in power, but he is also amazing in the kindness and the grace that he displays. So to set up the contrast, the psalmist points us uh, even beyond the earth. He, he takes the scope even further out. For why? You have set your glory above the heavens. So he's trying to capture the full scope of God's, God's beauty. And he extends it to the regions that are even beyond the psalmist's existence and beyond what he even knows what's out there. God's glory is even set above what I know. In other words, this is glory beyond what we can even grasp. He wants us to see the enormity of the display of God's fame and his renown and his character. He takes it as far as he can, but then he, but then looks, look what he says next in Psalm, uh, in verse 8, or sorry, verse 2. 
out of the mouth of babes and infants. You've established strength because of your foes to still the enemy and the avenger. So he goes from the highest of heights to describing this almost this limitless kind of power and glory and fame and beauty. And he describes the limited and even the powerless. He takes from the regions above the heavens to the babbling, incoherent, cooing speech or cries of children. Babes and uh, infants means toddlers and babies, and, and he is referring to the sounds that come from these children. And from these seemingly powerless, helpless children, Psalm 8 says that God in them establishes strength. The New International Version renders this as ordained praise. Apparently, it's, it's kind of hard to translate, but the meaning is fairly clear. When you put it in the context of foes, enemies, and avengers, the psalmist is contrasting God's incredible might with the fact that he is able to defeat his foes using the most weak and helpless creatures. The young children are a sufficient army to, to both praise him and to conquer the foes of God. Children, the babies that you hold in your hand, God is able to use them to silence the foes and the avengers. God uses children. God is so powerful that he can use children to bring down anybody who opposes him. Now, if you were raised in the church, you might be familiar with a, a song that had some motions. Only a boy named David. Yeah. And round and round and round and round and round. And all of a sudden, it's talking about David, who is killing who? Goliath. And he lets go. And what happens? Knocks Goliath in the noggin, knocks him out, takes a sword. And what does this young shepherd boy do? He destroys Goliath. David said to the Philistine, you come at me with the sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Do you hear it? It's like David's going, are you serious? You might be 12 feet tall and loaded with armor, a sword, a javelin, a spear, and you even have a kid who is carrying your armor around. But I come to you. I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts, who you are defying. I'll take a stone and kill you. David is not talking smack. The name of the Lord always, always trumps ability, age, strength, God's, just God's name. So when we pray in the name of Jesus, it carries what? Strength. Power. Not, not so that we manipulate, but we know whose name is able, if he so wills, to accomplish his purposes. And the psalmist 
is reflecting on how gracious God is to use people who are weak and powerless on their own. And God graciously gives power to those who are naturally weak. You feel weak? You know what God does? He gives you strength for today. So the formula goes like this. God, you are amazing in power. And you are amazing in your grace. And this theme is repeated again in verse 3 and 4. The psalmist looks up to the heaven. He sees the moon and the stars, which God does with what? His fingers. He places them all in their place. And he says, that, listen, you can't even do this, O human. You tried to build a tower of Babel. God set all the moon and the stars and the universe in place with his fingers. It's almost like a touch screen for God. In other words, the beauty of what is seen in the nightly sky was created by an almost effortless use of God's fingers. God is powerful. And this leads the psalmist, David, to, uh, he's, he's just amazed at God's power. And it leads him to ask this question. What is man? That you are mindful of him. The son of man, that you would even care for him. Are you serious, God? Me? And this comes out of a place of self-awareness, right? I am depraved. I am sinful. And what is man? That you, are, you, you even think about me. That you care about me. I am unworthy. So if this, it, it's as if the psalmist is looking at the sky, sky and says, why do you even care, God? We are nothing. We are so insignificant. We are helpless. We are weak. We are dependent. And the psalmist is, is, is overwhelmed with the contrast of God's power and his grace. One uh, commentator said this, in spite of the incredible chasm that separates humans and God, their God. So, in spite of the incredible chasm that separates humans and their God, so that humans appear as but minuscule specks of dust on a rock revolving around one of thousands of stars in but one of countless galaxies flung across the universe, God is still mindful of human of the human, and has the will, purpose, and incredible gifting in our lives. In another word, in, in another world of human kings, a peasant subject might languish, unknown, and uncared for in the furthest reaches of his kingdom. But yet Yahweh, our Lord, remains mindful of all those who he has made on purpose. And this is what happens, my friends, when you behold the real beauty of God. When you know him personally, this is why I love the Bible and why I love theology. The more I come to know and understand God, the more I am amazed that he actually cares. Why? That's why the Apostle Paul can say, I was the chief of sinners. And he's struck by, really? Me? It is by grace that I'm saved. Huh. And yet the psalmist, in this section of Scripture, 
did not know even how grand it is beyond him. He doesn't know what we know. The, the New Testament unpacks the graciousness of God in even deeper ways as the Son of God actually becomes, imagine this, that God now becomes this babe put on flesh in, in order to redeem us from the curse of sin. Just listen to the, how the Apostle John presents it. And if, listen to how gracious God really is. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen His glory, the glory of, as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about Him and cried out, This is was he of whom I said he has come, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And for from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. And then he goes on to say, and he was in the world and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own and, he, and, and his own people did not even receive him. But to all but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. So if you understand God's glory and your own sinfulness, then, you, then the more that you learn about both, you become more amazed at the graciousness of God. That God, if I was the only one that ever lived and I broke God's covenant, God would not say, let's start over from scratch. God, for you, would say for his glory's sake and your good, he would pour out his graciousness on you by giving his one and only son so that you may become a son of God. You should be blown away and it should change the way that you worship, the way that you work. It should be so overwhelming at some times that when you consider this self-existing, universe-creating, self-revealing, slavery-breaking, always-existing, never-ending, nation-conquering, people-loving, promise-keeping God, that He is our God and that He actually cares for you, your mind should go, you should be blown away. And then He sends His Son for me to become a a payment of, for my sin, he did that, is beyond belief. In fact, to understand this mystery of grace, you should make, uh, this mystery of grace should make us heartily agree with the psalmist, what is man that you are mindful of me? I do not deserve it. God has been incredibly gracious, which leads to the third statement. Everything I have is a gift from you. Verses 5 through 8. 
And it's kind of found as the psalmist reflects not only on the general grace of God considering mankind, but even on the more countless ways that God has blessed us. It's really as if John 1.16, what John 1.16 just said, we have received grace upon grace. And this is kind of the lavishing. It's the piling up. It's not like, oh, you just need a little extra. No, this is grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. Human beings have this special and honored role in God's creation. And it is a gift from God. Unlike any other creature in the planet, human beings are made in the likeness, the image of God. When your puppy dies, man, it's a sad day. Not created in the image of God. When humanity dies, our hearts should break. This is somebody who is created in the image of God. We are unique, my friends, in that God, what God said about human beings, let us make man after our likeness. The image of God is the imprint of the creator whereby human beings in thought, in feelings, in creativity, in action, and soul mirror what God is like. The psalmist marvels at God's gracious exaltation of humans who are made, who made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. The overarching tone of this section is not a fascination with mankind. The real focal point is that everything that human beings has have is given by God. We, we have not made ourselves. We didn't create the image of God. We don't create the gifts. God all, did all of this. And again, this changes the way that we see life. Human beings do some absolutely amazing things. YouTube it. Just look at some of the things you go, how did you do that? That was absolutely amazing. You look at technology. You look at societal, med medicinal, industry. Industry kind of advances, and they're just absolutely amazing to behold. Think one day we used to live in caves, chipping away at stones. And look now. It's amazing to watch the skilled athlete, a gifted musician, a talented artist, or a prolific writer use his or her talents. It is amazing. But underneath all of that talent, should be a clear understanding that it is God who has provided each and every gift. So beyond even special gifts, God has also granted an amazing amount of authority to us. God has entrusted us with an incredible role. You have given him dominion over the work of your hands. You've put all things under his feet. All sheep, all oxen, you know, what you've got. Sheep and oxen, and all the beasts of the field, all the birds of the air, all the fish of the sea, and whatever passes in the paths of the sea. In other words, I'm giving you comprehensive authority. To have dominion and to put something under one's feet indicates a level of authority and a level of victory. But notice that God has given us authority over the work of your hands, and the victory is something that God has created. And in both cases, God is clearly the center of it all. Therefore, any authority, any authority that is exercised in this world, personal, family, church, governmental, legal, 
It is all derived authority. The authority in elected office is not given to that person in office by the people. That authority is given to that person by God. Therefore, who is accountable? That person is accountable to God and God alone. You may hold a position, you may have some clout, you may have some power, but you do not hold it exclusively or independently. You only have it because of the good graces of God. That should make us fear how we use authority. This, by the way, is when you pray, think about how you pray before a meal. Sometimes it's kind of rote, right? I remember as a kid, how did I pray? Lord, bless this food. For Jesus' sake, amen. And we would get, go through that as quick as possible because we wanted to get to the pizza. God bless this food for Jesus' sake, amen. Grab the food. I'm sure it's not true in your house, but it wasn't ours. When we pray before a meal, uh, that prayer is an offering of thanksgiving for God's care and his provision. It's remembering that without God's this uh, grace sustaining everything that went into getting this food in the, on the plate in front of you, there would be no food. Everything is a gift from God. So where does this receiving of grace lead us? Full circle back to verse 1, or if you want, verse 8. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. So friends, good theology, good understanding of the Bible leads us to a place of doxology. And doxology is this giving of glory back to its rightful owner. Growing up in the church that I did, we, we sang the doxology every Sunday. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. What's the next line? Creatures here below. Praise ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Good theology. I loved how you had, you could do it. And then all of a sudden it's like, i got to sing it. Good theology always leads to doxology. So here's just three quick takeaways. Number one, we need to look at your life theologically. How sad it must be just to listen to a piece of music or to behold a baby or uh, look at the mountains and think, man, that was beautiful. But to view it that way is a, an impersonal uh, looking at it as wrongly. It, it requires us to look at it properly. To look at things wrongly misses out on the beauty of God. Therefore, I want, I want you to remember that everything in this world is not created as the end in itself. It was created, everything was created to point us to God. Everything. Your marriage, your friendships, your relationships, the green grass, the car, the, the whatever. All these things are there to point you to God. It's a platform of praise 
to our great God. Secondly, we need to look at ourselves humbly. It's, it's tragic and silly to think that we have made something of ourselves. Pride comes before the fall. And the right understanding of this psalm should bring us to our knees in humble acknowledgement that anything good, anything good, and, and any blessings and any success come only from the hand of God. How awful to have a heart filled with self-praise and pride when everything you have, including the mind that thinks such wicked thoughts, is only doing its work because of its heavenly Father. So we need to think of ourselves, look at ourselves humbly, properly. And then lastly, look to Jesus solely. Hebrews 2, the writer, in Hebrews 2, the writer uses Psalm 8 as part of his argument regarding the importance of the work of Jesus Christ. And in another chapter, we're told about Jesus' humanity, his suffering, his endurance, and his, his understanding. And then in Hebrews 2, Three, the writer captures the effect of this identification. Therefore, holy brothers, holy sisters, you who share in the heavenly calling, consider Jesus. It's his plea. In light of all of this, consider Jesus. In other words, if you want to see the most glorious demonstration of the majesty and the mercy and the beauty of God, look no further than Jesus. Look to Jesus. For in his life and in his death, we see this self-existing, universe-creating, self-revealing, slavery-breaking, always-existing, never-ending, nation-conquering, people-loving, promise-keeping, personal, caring God who laid down his life and died for you. Nothing is more worthy of praise than that. Nothing. Nothing is more worthy of giving your whole life to that. So when you consider your life, it is not your own. You are not your own, but you belong body and soul in life and in death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ, who made a way for you. My friends, give your life to Christ whether for the first time or saying Lord again today. Friends, this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Jesus, our Jesus. How majestic is your name in all the earth.